0: Welcome to the Cloud Security Mindset Podcast, where we explore how interesting security professionals think, to learn how they succeed, handle failure, and respond to the disruptive forces facing security today. Hi, everyone. So when we did our interview with Wendy, we didn't plan to split it into two parts. So what we're going to do is rewind for about a minute or two to reset the discussion and then finish up with part two of our interview with Wendy Nather. Thanks for listening
1: well that's the whole difference between enabling and preventing Mm -hmm. right what you just your view on zero trust which is again very interesting and i I hadn't seen a talk that you've done on that yet so so it's it's really compelling to me uh is you you know kind of this idea of how do we enable new processes knowing that we can start to add a layer of trust to what folks are doing as opposed to everybody else saying trust no one, verify everything, you know, kind of, we can't do this kind of stuff and, and you know, block first, ask questions later, right? I mean, I think that's kind of how zero trust has been rolled out throughout the security industry.
2: Yeah, it it, it depends on who you talk to at any given time. I know there are a lot of CISOs who don't like the term zero trust. Either they feel it's a buzzword, which, you know, it kind of it is, is. Um, or, or to just feel it's not the phrase that they want to bring to their management. Um, But I think there's a lot of room under that tent to figure out how you want to implement it and describe it. And in fact, I am going to be um, speaking on this uh, in my keynote at RSA and describing it as democratizing security, because I think that's ultimately where this is going.
0: Do you think that is this a, let me take a step back, in the aggregate, is it that zero trust reduces risk to the organization or does it exchange some collaboration and employee freedom for potentially greater risk
2: uh i would say that's all in how you implement it which of course is always the the tricky part you know all of these models sound really good in theory but it's the application that's the very very hard part um i but i would argue that You don't have to go, you know, full zero trust on anything to make your security better. If you are questioning an assumption and deciding, okay, we're going to verify this a little bit better now, then you are making security incrementally better, even if you're not doing it everywhere. And even if you're, you know, you you haven't done the full zero trust transformation.
0: So I I think you made a critical mistake there, which you told me it was all in the way you implement it. So you're the CISO again. So we're going back to that organization, you've explained things to the board, let's assume you've got, uh, you know, some level of progress, you're moving some of the stuff into the cloud, and you've got your on premise stuff, and you're being smart about it and refactoring. What are the first three things you do? And in particular, let's keep it focused on the topic of the day today, you know, take zero trust out of concept, brass tacks, what do you do how do you
1: approach the problem and and quit is not an option
2: <laughs> prepare three envelopes <laughs> just, right. just like the old joke um well you can do things like uh you know if you're you if you're attacking particular risks like account takeover which is a big big thing um and and not not to be too commercial about it but if you implemented multi-factor authentication across the board you would be reducing that risk right away
0: so so i'm putting you on the spot what would you do is so you're we're speaking generality so would you implement mfa would that be the first thing that you do
2: that's probably one of the first things that i would do um because it does reduce a lot of the attack surface if you're able to do it on all your users across the board and here's here's kind of the, the kinky thing about it though it, not that I would recommend anybody do this, but uh, there are a lot of users who do not like MFA and you know they hate the additional friction of it. But if you were to roll out MFA across the board and just remember everybody's devices forever, so they never had to use 2FA again unless they were using a different device, I would argue you've already shrunk the attack surface because everybody, has to use their own assigned, remembered devices. And if anybody steals credentials and tries to use it from someplace else, they're gonna hit the 2FA.
0: Got it. So you would deploy the MFA, just to make sure I understand properly, where devices are remembered once you punch it in for the first time. And you're saying even do that indefinitely, which is very contrary to how most security people think.
2: Oh yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I wouldn't go out on a limb and say, everybody should do this. But I'm saying theoretically, if you wanted to do the bare, bare, bare minimum of putting something in that was the least disruptive to your users, if you had them register for MFA, you wouldn't be getting rid of all risk, but you'd be reducing a lot of risk because nobody at that point anymore um, could simply steal a set of primary credentials and get in from any device anywhere.
0: How do you present this to management? How do you justify the change to them and explain it? And, and tell us first how you would explain it to management and then how you would try to explain it to the organization
2: at large. Um, well, I I would not uh, go as far as to do the, you know, um, MFA everywhere, but nobody ever has to use it as long as you're with your own device. Unless I was getting a lot of pushback from management and saying, you know, nobody is ever going to sit still for this. Um, then, then I would ratchet it back and say, okay, how about this compromise? We set it up, but you only have to use it once, and then after that, as long as you're using your device, you don't have to use it again. Um, so, I, I it would start with the description to management, saying, here is the risk that we are trying to reduce. And here's here's some of the evidence that we are seeing account takeover attacks. It is happening to us right now. Uh, here's how often we're having to you know recover accounts and whatever. Um, and I'm proposing to do this. And you know what? I would actually present it the same way to the organization. I mean, nobody's stupid uh, in the organization. I would I would describe it the same way to everybody. Have the same consistent story, and then say you know, what do you think? Are you willing to do this in order to mitigate this risk?
0: When you go to actually present this to your management and you you talk about the degree of account takeover. So it sounds like one of the things you would want in your pocket is uh, the number of incidents that you've had or some metric to present to them on account takeovers. Is that me reading between the lines correctly?
2: That's absolutely right. Yeah.
0: Okay. Then if they say well great how much will that save us kind of measuring to to losses which is unfortunate i think i think we would all agree that that's a nearly impossible task but what do you do to defeat that particular argument
2: yeah i mean the next question is always going to be what is it going to cost and is spending that money going to save us any money anywhere else you know what's the benefit to us and this is the hardest discussion in my opinion between a CISO and management is they may agree on the impact like yes if this happened it would be really bad and we would lose 11 billion dollars worth of funding but we don't think it's really going to happen and so that gap in in probability estimation is is difficult for CISOs so that's where you have to come in with your evidence you either have to say you have to prove that it is higher probability than maybe your management thinks it is. Either by saying, look, here are the logs, we are seeing these attacks right now, and here's what's stopping them right now or not, but it's not gonna stop them for long. Or at the very least, you have to show them data from peers um, where they say, okay, I could see how if it happens to them, it's probably gonna happen to us. And then third tier, if you couldn't do any of that, then you'd have to go to headlines, but I hate going to headlines or marketing reports to try to make that case because management feels very disconnected from something like that and they don't feel it as personally as going to them with your own log so i like
0: how you're structuring that it's the you start with internal here's our visibility here's what we have here's our own organization's experiences and then you move on to the peers and then you go to the public i guess the the fud after that and and yeah I, that that's a really interesting kind of structure in your history what, what's the success of the internal argument been compared to the others which of those is usually mo- like how often do you have to go to option three
2: in my in my own experience it hasn't been as bad as some cso's have had to deal with i do know of one um, person who was briefing a a CIO at another agency um, about the, the current attacks and how they were attacking peers and they were probably coming their way. And the CIO actually said, let's just wait until they actually attack us. They were just not going to do anything until the probability reached one. Now I find that if I'm talking about probability with my management, If I say, you know, you tell me what, how likely do you think this is to happen? And we have a discussion about it. If they come up with the figures, then they're more likely to believe them for one thing. But it makes it more of a dialogue because I can say, yes, I can see how you got to that probability, but maybe what you don't know is this, you know, our competitors are experiencing this right now. And I was just at a meeting with them yesterday and learned about it. So bringing that together, they're more likely to listen to that additional information too, instead of just going into them with a newspaper headline and going, oh my God, we we totally have to do this risk management. So building that up, the case up bit by bit in a dialogue with management, I find is the technique that works best.
0: You started with account takeovers as the problem that you wanted to solve with MFA being the solution or the approach that you want to take to that. Uh, What made you pick account takeovers as first?
2: It doesn't have to be first, but in my experience, that's one of the biggest problems that CISOs face regularly that is visible, that is probable enough to be, you know, it's happening everywhere and you can get a lot of data to show that it is happening. And when you put that together with things like brute forcing attacks one of the advantages of mfa that we have found is that in some cases if you implement it across the board a lot of attackers just stop trying to attack you they take you out of the automated rotation so it's a combination of prevention but also deterrence which is really rare to be able to get out of a security product So I kind of picked it because it was a lot of bang for the buck. It is more difficult because it's user facing than just making some changes to your firewalls on the back end that nobody notices. But uh, I just find that, you know, it's a great way to hit one of the biggest risks right out of that. And if that's all the budget you've got for this year, then that's probably what you got to go with.
0: How then you put this in place. How do you measure success?
2: Again, with, with something like this, uh, fortunately, this is one of the areas where you can measure success. There's a a great blog post by Emory University where they, taught about putting, they talked about putting in an MFA and they measured before and after and they were able to say that, first of all, the brute forcing attacks that they saw uh, or the, the number of compromised accounts dropped by something like 95% after they put it in. And also the number of phishing domains that they had to block dropped by a similar amount like 90 plus percent. It's like the fishers saw that they had MFA and they just stopped trying to send phishing emails to get to get those credentials anymore. That that's one of the very few places where you actually can get some hard numbers and share them.
0: That's number 1. And perhaps we don't need to go as in depth on it, because I think this has given us a, a good idea of how you're thinking. I mean, it seems like you've made the decision on one, it's a visible, more measurable problem Two, it's one that, you know, has a deterrence factor built in and three, it, it's going to make it easier to show success. And, and obviously that, that helps build credibility. So that's all worked. Right. And the way that you've laid it out, what's the next one?
2: You know, and if I were um, attacking this as a CISO again, I would be thinking not only in terms of what can I do quickly, what what is you know what is the cost going to be, how many moving parts are going to be in this project, but also what can I start setting into motion now that I'm not going to be able to finish for a year or two. And one example would be something like n- additional network segmentation that sort of thing where you are trying to figure out what actually needs to talk to what thing, that can take up to a year to figure out when you're collecting data and some things only happen once a quarter or once a year. So a lot of that, or you know, doing anything with asset inventory is going to take time and you can set it into motion and say, whenever we get the information that we need to be able to finish this, then we'll go back and actually do it. I would sort of, you know, set those adrift and, and send them out to start working and then say, okay, what's the next thing that I could do short term?
0: So really it's, you're going for that quick win up front and that real visible one, almost to buy yourself time to address some of the deeper infrastructure issues?
2: Yeah. Or just kind of do things in parallel. Uh, If you're going to be addressing um, application security flaws, you, you know, that can take anywhere from six weeks to a year, depending on your processes and, and what it is. So you kind of look up, okay, h- how many different things can I do? What order do I need to do them in? Sometimes it's not necessarily, okay, what's our most critical thing that we need to secure? Because that could also be the hardest. You might try to pick something that's easy, like what can I fix around these applications because this user base is very forgiving and i want to start with them if i'm going to start making changes there are so many factors that you think about when you're trying to plan new security controls that that go beyond just budget although budget's a part of it too a lot of it is time a lot of it is personality a lot of it is corporate culture um constraints you know we can't do this until these databases get updated and that's not going to happen for 6 months so we're not even going to look at this until 6 months in you know a big it, it's a big sort of campaign if you like
0: so i'm just visualizing as you're talking this massive whiteboard i give you an example i was in working with an organization this week and they had a whiteboard on a wall and it was a it was a full wall and there were so many pieces of red string in there i thought it was a parody of one of those murder <laughs> mysteries Is uh-huh. you know everything here yeah, i mean this. Yeah. This sounds hard and demanding and you're playing a short game and a long game at the, you know, basically at the same time. It, it, it sounds You laughed when we suggested you be the CISO again, probably because mm-hmm. it sounds hard and tiring. How do you deal with that? How would you if you really were in that situation, which I know we all say never is, again, but now I've got a CISO title and Mike's back in a startup, both things that... <laughs> and i did say never again to that to be clear. <laughs> very very clearly multiple times both sober and not uh h- how do you maintain your sanity and avoid the burnout
2: oh it is it is so hard um first of all it makes such a difference to have a great team uh, I'm so lucky that every time i've worked with a team that i've put together they have just been so awesome and whether it's just you know, sitting in your office and laughing so hard that your CIO is pounding on the wall from the other side, or, you know, finding a good group in the community to talk with, uh, you know, like you and Mike and and Hoff and, you know, Alex Hutton and Mortman and, you know, all the usual suspects who understand and can commiserate. You just have to keep feeding yourself with that because I think sometimes that's why we have so many security events, because only other security people understand what we're going through. And you need that regular contact with somebody pouring you a beer and saying, yes, I understand.
0: So do you think that that security people actually think differently? Is it a shared experiences or is
1: it a our brains work differently or a way to make us feel important?
2: (laughs) Yeah, let's all feel uh, it. important or impotent i'm not sure which (laughs) both yeah go ahead Uh, yeah it's it's very hard to to feel as though you have the power to change things sometimes i think anyone can learn to think that the way that we think but it is a very it can be a very lonely sort of paranoid journey and if you're sitting with somebody who refuses to post their you know vacation photos until they've been home for three weeks you know just on general principle uh, you, you really need to be some, with somebody who understands that mindset. But I, I don't think it's inherently something different in the brain. I think, you know, anybody can learn it if they take enough time to do it. It
0: seems then your way of approaching the burnout, it, it, it comes down to community. It comes out to other people. And, and changing, changing jobs. Yeah. <laughs> and changing the environment. It, but you said I couldn't totally do that. totally legitimate. So, yeah. uh, but would you classify yourself as an introvert? an extrovert
2: i am an introvert I, i'm a high functioning introvert and i extrovert for my paycheck but it means that i really do have to go recover um it, which is you know why i i often don't go out to dinner you know by evening at a conference i am just done and i, I definitely need that alone time to recharge
0: so then is, is that a conflict where your how you're managing the stresses of, of the job in the industry require you to interact with others whereas an introvert you you recharge and you gain your energy through largely being having time to yourself
2: dude that's what online is for (laughs) i can stay alone at home and i can talk to my friends at the same time that's i think that's one of the biggest gifts to introverts is um believe it or not social media online
0: now you have and we did check with you ahead of time that we could go in here more than many others you you went through some real personal trials over the past few years or recently in your career uh, and you're a cancer survivor. I don't know if that's the term that you prefer to use or sure. Or whatever. Sure, whatever. Uh, <laughs> did that change your perspective on any of this or, you know, in terms of, of the job and reliance on others and prioritizations uh, and even how do you manage your career for the long haul?
2: I wish I could say it's changed my perspective, but no, it's, You know, I think when you're dealing with something personal like health issues or taking care care of dying parents, parents it puts everything into perspective at work, but you kind of shift among all of them and go, okay, today I'm really going to deal with this particular work crisis. And then when you you know, suddenly end up in the hospital, you're like, okay, guess I'm not dealing with the work crisis right now. I'm going to shift my attention to this. So I think life has a way of getting your attention for the things that you absolutely need to do. And that changes all the time. I think the, the only thing I've learned is to be okay with switching amongst all of those different things and trying not to feel too bad about the ones that are not my focus right now. Uh, although I think everybody feels a little bit of guilt about that. So it's, you know, we used it's to assume everything was okay if you then? were using that, corporate it, devices, did that and that therefore, they, your yeah.
0: ability to do and that, that was a big or... assumption.
2: Yeah, or forced context shifting. I, I, I think a lot of us feel as though things are under our control a lot more than they actually are. And there's nothing like an illness, or uh, you know, the challenge of caring for a loved one, that teaches you that you are less in control than you think you are. And say, look, you, you know, your device, do what you want. Outside but if you of work want to access manage, our resources, okay. you have Let's to meet our security requirements. Let's be clear. You talk publicly about which are these. you're one of the people. You figure like out you, how who, and, uh, you want to do it. And when you're ready, you can okay. come in. And,
0: and you've done that. So way it's to try more help
2: collaborative. Others. There is uh, less but you control. Other things outside of work that you may not need to be there. Help you more than just to scale better because you know I'm still trying things. I'm still looking for things. And I have an executive coach who helps me try to figure out these things, You know, whether it's building more deliberate white space into my schedule and just sitting there and just staring at the walls for a while, um, not making every day about going 100% nine to five, or you know, figuring out if there's an activity that I would like to try, and then banking up enough energy to be able to go try that activity for Um, peer-to-peer relationships rather than able to work all week and then just go climb a mountain on the weekend and and they feel fine Uh, depending on what i want to do to relax i have to i have to build up to it (laughs) and so i'm just you know still learning more about myself i guess wow that sounds really narcissistic but that's it is what it is
1: no but learning about yourself now Right. I mean, I certainly know myself at twenty five and the things that made me happy versus myself at fifty one are totally different. Right. So so that's an ongoing learning process uh where you really have to, you know, understand what's gonna make me happy at any given day. Of
0: course, I am a forty eight year old who still dresses up as a stormtrooper, so clearly the only difference between seven year old me and now is money. But Yeah, yeah. Better, better costumes, better bigger costumes. budget. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, one last question on this before Mike and I have some kind of pre-canned questions that we want to finish up the interviews with, uh, you have an executive coach. So, I mean, that, that's really compelling and interesting. What, what was that process like? What made you do that? Uh, how did you go about it? And, and is it something that you kind of just do on the side or have you, you know, what are the benefits you've been getting out of it?
2: Well, I, I decided to look for an executive coach, um, I, I was diagnosed with ADHD in my 40s when I was getting one of my kids diagnosed at the same time and went, huh, this sounds really familiar.
0: Was this a Martin McKay where the doctor looks at you and go, hey, we need to have a talk? Or
2: No, no, it was just that, huh, this really does sound familiar. Maybe I should look into this myself. But also when I finished chemotherapy, that, that affects your brain a lot and your memory. And so I first went found a coach because I was trying to figure out how to manage cognitively you know all the email and tasks and people i was meeting i was working as an analyst and you know talking to literally hundreds of different vendors trying to keep them straight and you know figuring out how to, kind of the mechanics are 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 there you know the right tools that i should be using to keep track of everything after a while, um, my coach really opened up the conversation to what part of this is working for you and what part of it isn't working for you. And I you know, took a step back and thought, you know, it's, as Dr. Beverly Crusher said famously in The Next Generation, if there's nothing wrong with me, then there must be something wrong with the universe. And that's when I figured that maybe I should think about changing jobs as well as just trying to cope with the job that I had. From then on, you know, we've been attacking all sorts of different issues as they come up and figuring out how to deal with them.
0: And so you've been working with the same coach this entire time. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And is this something you, you would recommend to everyone? I mean, have you gotten those, that degree benefit from it, or does it have to be the right place and the right time for you as an individual?
2: It does take a lot of extra work, any kind of of coach work, life coaching, therapy, whatever, You know, when you're questioning what you're doing and thinking harder about how to do some things that you've been on automatic about, it does take a a lot of extra energy. So I think it really has to be at a time when you feel as though you need to fix things and you need a change and you're willing to take the time to do it.
1: To- totally agree with that. I mean that that's been my experience as well. It, it really got to a point with me that I I could not do it myself anymore, and I needed somebody else to both push and provide a different perspective. So so totally get you know kind of the fact that uh, it has to the timing has to be right on the on on your part, or else you know you're just basically going through the motions with somebody else. Yeah. So let's uh, wrap up a l- little bit. So, what we like to do to to wrap up the uh, the Cloud Security Mindset podcast is, you, know, you again, try to educate and and inform uh, some of the folks about some of the things that were uh, important to you. So, just f- fairly simple questions, right? So, favorite book, Wendy?
2: Oh, that that is so hard. I I I, I love so many books. Um, I think one that I keep going back to when I want a certain mood is a uh, little big by John Crowley. It's a kind of an urban fantasy novel.
1: No, that's cool. I I'm not familiar with that one. Um, most impactful mentor.
2: Oh man. Um, that's also really hard because I've learned so much from different people. I, I the most I can say is I think the best things that bosses have ever done for me were to let help me understand what was going on up on their level that I didn't necessarily hear about so I could think bigger and secondly tell me what I needed to learn and make sure that I learned it like you know you need to learn more about managing budgets so I'm going to put you in charge of this Um, those are the two things that um, I would say my best my best bosses my best mentors have done for me
1: great and uh what would you tell your 25 year old self today
2: oh gosh um you have no idea what's in store for you and um also never drive yourself to the emergency room that's a bad idea
0: (laughs) was that a a hard-earned experience or just something you've witnessed in others
2: no it's it's very it's very true i was uh, when i was going through chemo and i was Uh, I thought I was having a bad asthma attack um, and my inhalers just weren't working. And um, I finally went to the doctor and my chest x-ray was clear, but she looked at me and said, I think you need to go to the emergency room and have a CT scan of your lungs right now. So I went, okay. And I drove myself to the ER and it turns out that I had pulmonary emboli all over my lungs. I had, uh, what was it extensive, not massive, but extensive. It was like a notch down from why are you not dead?
0: I won't um, go into that. Cause obviously the paramedic in me would just love to dig in on your, you know, medical issues, but I, I, I had one of those similar <laughs> yeah. ones, I, I was really sick. I went to my doctor. I went back to my place. It was when I was living in Boulder and the doctor calls me up. The first words out of his mouth are how far away are you from the hospital?
2: <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> yes. "What?
0: Uh, I did not drive myself.
2: Yeah, or the doctor says to you, "Do you have any other appointments this afternoon, or that you can cancel?" That's another thing.
1: So one more, Wendy, and then we'll okay. let you go. Um, how much longer do you see yourself in security?
2: Mm, what time is it? <laughs> oh, <Chuck>. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, I don't know, and uh, because I'm always willing to try the next opportunity, and I have no idea what's what it's going to be. I'm not looking to leave security. I'm not looking to stay in security. I'm just, you know, gonna look and see what comes along. And if it turns out that until I get to the point where I can retire, that I, I kind of shift what I'm doing in security and I'm helping other people build themselves up, then I'd be perfectly happy doing that.
0: Wendy, thanks a ton for your time. You were very generous, particularly because uh, I had some microphone issues as we were getting our new technologies.
2: Yeah, we weren't going to mention. that. I was going to
1: mention that. I told Wendy to make fun of you, but she's far too classy. <laughs> she is. You're not, like But uh,
0: <laughs> no, this this was wonderful, and um, I, I just I, I I really love the way you think about these things. It's just such a you know your down to earth angle of it. You're passionate, but without being evangelical
1: in your face right
0: (laughs) no that was great Uh, thanks everybody for listening and hopefully this gives you a sense of where we're going with the show and i hope everybody has a wonderful day